Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Dan Trier returns, and we talk about his new book on Christology. We talk about some big and common questions when it relates to Christology as we think about the incarnation and celebrating the birth of our Savior here around Christmas time. So hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dan. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation and their commentaries and study Bibles and other resources they provide. We also have a special discount code at lifeway.com for Church Grammar listeners. It's CGCSB, that's CG as in church grammar, CGCSB is a promo code to use at lifeway.com at checkout, and you can get 40% off up to three CSB Bibles. So use promo code CGCSB for 40% off on CSB Bibles at lifeway.com. And now my conversation with Dan Trier, but first, no big deal. Dan Trier is back. Uh, I, I went and did the did the math, or went and looked at the archives. This is your fourth appearance on Church Grammar, which puts you in rarefied. It's amazing error. the thing is still going after that. <laughs> That's right. No, you're you're my uh, you're my go to whenever I'm struggling and I need a good guest. You know, I just call Dan Trier. So, or text. Um, well, yes, but I understand I'm not allowed to poke fun at that anymore. Yeah, after the the uh, the texting gate between Smith and Trier, uh, yep. 2023 on Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, I'm does glad anybody even does anybody even know what happens on Twitter anymore? Well, enough people that I had, like I told you, more than one person texted me and said, "Why is Dan Trier making fun of you on Twitter or ripping you on Twitter?" Yeah. So that's at your least love, that many people. It's your love language. Yeah, that's. I was like, this is how you know he loves me, that he made fun of me. You know, that's, you that's my love language. So, all right. Well, this is your fourth time on. Um, and we have talked about, in some ways, a lot of the issues that are coming up in your new book, uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, I, and I was telling you before we started recording, I think this is, you know, these Christology books come out and you're always wondering what's the unique contribution or is there one? And there is a sense in which, on the one hand, you're not doing anything new, which is what you should be doing with things like Christology, right? You didn't come up with a new heresy. Um, we hope. <laughs> so there's no, there's no, uh, we're not going to be looking back on the trier controversy of 23 or anything like that. Um, on the same token, though, I think the thing that you do so well and the thing that has, has influenced me personally and so many others is how you bring together uh, good historic orthodox theology and also a really good attentiveness to the text and real care about exegesis. So if people look at the um, table of contents, they'll see that, you know, all of your big theological claims about Christ are anchored in texts, you know, and I think that's a great contribution. So I think it'd be helpful maybe just to hear a little bit, you know, behind the scenes methodology, what you were thinking as you were trying to put this together and, and what kind of big contributions you're trying to make with this book. Well, thank you. And first, I am going to say something serious. Um, congratulations on three books that will help the church uh, to see the doctrine of the Trinity as organically connected to and in the Bible. That's a great gift to the church. And um, you've had a lot going on in the last year or so. But uh, <laughs> we, in, in wanting our theology to be deeply uh, tied to and emerging from Scripture, we are kindred souls. And so yes. congrats on your 
work on the Trinity side of the fence. I appreciate that. I've told um, you before, if it wasn't for your TIS intro, it wouldn't have happened. So well, uh, thankful um, for, for your influence on that. We'll be grateful to God's providence and blessing for that. Yeah. I, I certainly uh, did not set out uh, to do this book this way to prove some kind of point about TIS. If it does prove that point, then that's great as a byproduct. But um, there's a sense in which I have wanted to think and teach about Christology for a long time. When Mike Allen and Scott Swain asked me to contribute to the series, I wanted to take on Christology and they graciously invited me to do that because it's a longstanding desire to go beyond teaching in the classroom about it to teaching in print. And I did have a certain set of questions that were particularly um, on my mind. Um, Is classic Christology organically in Scripture? And what should we make as theologians of developments in biblical scholarship like early high Christology? And then how do we relate um, classic Christology and our Protestant Reformation evangelical commitments to all that God is doing in the global church? Those questions have been forefront in my mind. So it's unsurprising then that um, exegesis of major scripture texts would sort of leap to the fore as the way to go about doing this. Um, so that's the short version of the answer, and we can pick away at longer bits if you want. But th- that's the core answer, is that the, the questions that most energized me were going to drive me to the text of Scripture. Yeah. Well, as as good evangelicals, that's what we should be doing, right? So, yeah. Um, Amen. Yeah. Now, I'm tempted. Uh, this, you know, I try, I've been trying the last couple of years to, to post um, – something like a Christology Q&A, big questions in Christology around Christmas every year, because that's when a lot of these issues come up. Uh, I, I noticed that the last two years I had Catholics, so I thought I probably should have a, a Protestant this time. So <laughs> um, I think it would be helpful you know, for people who are thinking about, you know, you brought up the idea of this sort of classic Christology, and obviously in, in the book you're dealing with those issues. So you know, as a Protestant thinking about the Christian tradition and our relationship to that and exegesis, what are some some big picture ways that you think about the relationship between them? Uh, how would you, uh, you know, encourage pastors and teachers to think through how do I uh, draw on this tradition that is in some ways foreign to me? And in some ways, the, the Protestant Re- Reformation, at least in part, responded to some of the problems of tradition being too important, right? Uh, on the same token, uh, knowing that we are in that tradition, and wanting to be faithful to Scripture at the same time. So how do you think through those issues as you're doing this kind of work? I think, you know, a a series of anchor texts just leaped to the fore. John chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, notably as anchor texts in the development of the creedal uh, formulae. So I knew I was going to address those texts in a serious way. And I wanted to address both the best of ancient exegesis on those texts and the pressing modern questions that emerge in relation to those texts. So when I started working on John 1, 
you know, I had an inkling that it would be vital in terms of the deity of Christ and the intersection between divine revelation and Christology. But I saw in the literature an even stronger affirmation of its uh, patristic importance than I was expecting. And I don't think Athanasius got everything right, and I'm in print critiquing Athanasius's way of reading Proverbs 8, but I do think that his way of reading John 1 in Orations Against the Arians is at uh, some basic level correct. Um, and so then you're going to draw on those resources for thinking about the eternal relationship of father and son and how that affects the nature of our salvation uh, when you see what you, you think is kind of seminal insight. And on the other side of the fence, uh, Philippians 2 is perennially appealed to in a modern context, orbiting around issues of canonicism yeah. and how do we construe that, even if that Christological move is only indirectly related to Philippians 2 itself and is more borrowing a name from Philippians chapter 2 than anything else. Nevertheless, Philippians 2 opens a kind of window into all the thorny issues of modern Christology as they emerge from the German Enlightenment context and then cross the various seas. And so um, it just seemed to me that um, extended history of exegesis and um, conceptual reflection emerged pretty naturally in those two cases. And I think the first six ecumenical councils, the Christology up through Chalcedon, um, is eminently defensible uh, from these and other scripture texts. It's a it's a grammar, but not just a grammar. It's a grammar that reflects uh, at our indirect level of human knowledge of a great mystery. It's a grammar that reflects the reality of what God has done in Christ. Now, I, on the other hand, show my Protestant um, colors pretty clearly by breaking with the Seventh Ecumenical Council on the issue of iconoclasm. So I think I show that I'm not just a hidebound traditionalist. Yeah. Well, at worst case scenario, I just deny one of them, you know, or deny <laughs> seven. Yeah, deny seven. That's it. Um, I was actually teaching on that in church history. I think it was last week or two weeks ago. And I mentioned a joke like that. I said, you know, I think one way to be Protestant is just to deny the seventh one. And then you're basically fine. That's what they've all done. Um, no, that's helpful because that that does, it, it shows that sort of you're not, you know, you're not bound to tradition in some sort of um, uh, overly authoritative way or some sort of like, uh, you know, well, we can't read the Bible without these things, but rather these things help us read the Bible, right? Yes. And so they're useful insofar as they help us be faithful to scripture, which interestingly enough, that's where they were drawn from, right, was was interpreting scripture. So um, I'm not going to get a hobby horse about that today, though. So um, I, so your first chapter, I'm kind of tempted to do our entire conversation on your first chapter on communion as the Son of God. Um, I don't think I've told you this yet, but me and Matt Emerson have a book coming out next year on inseparable operations. And oh. there's a section in, the, in uh, communion where I just uh, quote you for like three paragraphs. I just riff on this beginning of this chapter because I think it's so helpful. Um, so... You get into the issue of the son's unique relationship to the father, right, in all of eternity. 
and then the way that that plays itself out in our actual communion with God. So we get into adoption and, and things like that. So you have a, um, if I can find my spot here. So you have a sentence in here that I think is really helpful because it really gets that salvation really at the core, uh, riffing on Ephesians 1. So one of your your four points here on communion, you say, uh, uh, rather than retaining an altogether exclusive relationship with God the Father, the divine Son incorporates human beings into a creaturely form of filial communion that's introduced in Ephesians 1.5, this idea that we're adopted in Christ. So uh, uh, that's an issue I, I hear students asking about a lot is... Uh, in so how much can we say about the relationship between the father and son and how that influences the way that we think about father-son relationships, the way we think about our relationship to the father. So maybe draw out a little bit of those theological implications there of the son being a son by nature and then us being sons and daughters by adoption and, and why that's important for salvation. We're having a lively conversation about that around here, particularly in our PhD program kind of on two fronts. On the one hand, we've had multiple students working on adoption, both in New Testament studies and in systematic theology, and the one always pushes you toward the other. And so uh, we've had a lot of, um, uh, at least implicitly, theological exegesis or biblical theology, whatever you want to call it, going on with respect to adoption. And it struck me in doing this work that it's it's tempting to see adoption only as a subset of talking about our saving knowledge of God because it's only explicit in five or so key Pauline texts. And so there's a temptation to relegate it to a pretty secondary status. Kevin Van Hooser flagged up in a dialogue with N.T. Wright at the Wheaton Theology Conference some years ago that adoption might be relatively neglected as a way of holding together legal and communal or relational aspects in a theology of justification. And I think that's right. And a student here is kind of taking up that wager. But J.I. Packer was saying this about the neglected importance of uh, our adoption status a long time ago, decades ago, and we just didn't I think, pick up the full significance of it. And um, Tim Trumper and others were, you know, providing a kind of rallying cry, but it, it wasn't getting our attention maybe in the way that it should. So it struck me that in Ephesians 1, you don't have the name son directly applied to Christ in an explicit way, and you don't have much explicit adoption language in Paul, yet there is a sense in which this is the foundational reality of what union with Christ means in a text like this. So I think on the soteriology side, it just needs more attention than we've given it. And maybe this is a pointer to a kind of lesson and method that, yes, we need to pay attention to what's explicit, but we also need to go beyond just frequency counts of words to conceptual realities that may be indirectly or implicitly there by other words. And um, so adoption in Ephesians 1 is a very powerful instance of that. And then we've been having a lot of conversations around here too, given my colleague Amy Peeler's work and, and other contemporary discussions about, you know, in what sense, if we're not going to say that God is biologically male, and therefore, in a certain sense, we're not going to say that God is culturally masculine in a way that's tied to biological maleness. 
Um, no, God is eternal spirit. Well, then in what sense, if any, are father and son names really disclosive of the imminent Trinity? Yeah. Or are they just kind of economic uh, naming realities? And I don't think we've got that all figured out. I think my colleague has shown that the, the tradition hasn't always worked through the implications of its uh, view of analogy, that if our language for God is analogical and not simply univocal, then there is both similarity and difference in how terms uh, apply to God and to us. And sometimes we have said with our mouths, well, God is spirit, so God is not biologically male, but we have tended to have a lot of cultural traffic still going from down to up, uh, projecting human masculinity onto God in some ways that the the Bible should guard us against. But I think um, my colleague's work has suggested one helpful key that is not in the book, but that I've been working with in the dialogue since. And, and that is that um, God and world are distinct in the creator-creature distinction. And that is appropriate to the way that fathers and children relate in terms of gestation or non-gestation in a way that would be different if God were named mother and creatures or the world were, as it were, within the divine womb. That would be pantheism or panentheism. And so that reality that we see in the incarnation of God becoming incarnate by way of taking up female flesh, taking residence within the womb, but on the father side, remaining distinct from creation, I think there are ways to work that out, not just with respect to incarnation, but with respect to the God-world relationship. And so I think we can say that father-son really do serve as proper names for the first and second persons of the triune Godhead. And they are, in a certain sense, imminently, uh, not just economically appropriate names, But the primary point of that is not to project masculine traits or characteristics onto the divine being in a way that is going to enmesh God in biology. But the primary point is to have the creator-creature relation uh, appropriately distinct and the father-son personhood relation have, um, yes, perichoretic coherence of being, but also appropriate distinctness of being for the Son as the second person of the Godhead to be the one who would become incarnate and then relate to God as Father. So I don't think um, that Father, Son are simply economic, but I don't think they are imminent in a way that project human biological and thereby cultural traits um, of masculinity onto God. At least that's the way I think I want to work on an answer. And that's a really long answer, so I'm I'm sorry, that's bad podcasting, but I don't know how to say it quicker yet because these thoughts are kind of too new. No, I mean, I just I just say, you know, give the chef the ingredients and let him cook, you know. So I just gave you some ingredients and <laughs> just let you cook. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, that is a really big thorny question. I think maybe the most, you know, direct uh, application maybe for your average Bible reader or somebody who's doing kind of a basic theology, right, is like, 
the inheritance language, right? The, the idea yes. that we, we get what is God. So we get, we, this divine life has been offered to us in a sense. Um, yes. Galatians four, right? We get to, we get to cry out to him as father uh, because of what the son has done. And so you take away, I mean, yeah, when students ask me, you know, about the, the father son thing, I mean, I, I want to say something that there's something eternal and meaningful about the names and the proper, they're the proper, but when we're thinking about, well, why does that matter for us? Other than knowing God, which is its own end, is the idea that, yeah, like you get to be included in the family of God because the son has come. And so all the Old Testament language about inheritance and sonship and firstborn and all that kind of stuff gets picked up in a way that if Jesus were incarnate as a as a female would just would, would break apart so many prom- messianic promises otherwise. Yep. And, and you can ask the question about why God did that, but that's not really the question, right? It's how does the Bible fit together? So um, I think that's where the soteriological stuff really comes in, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, evangelicals in some subcultures anyway have needed to rediscover the language of participation or union. Yeah. Um, and there is a mysterious or mystical dimension to that, but there's a difference between construing that in terms of like oozy being swallowed up into the divine being versus a richly relational sense of being drawn into fellowship and fellowship that is familial in a sense of the, you know, appropriately uh, paternal love of God. And uh, I think that's what Ephesians 1 helps to point us to is a sense of union or participation that is adoptive and shows us the extent of God's love in bringing people into the family, uh, not just loving us simply as if we're already there, but then in bringing us into the family, giving us that inheritance, also giving us, you know, the love that is appropriate of um, a father to a child. Yeah. And it, and if the father-son names are eternal and proper, then of course the whole biblical storyline is pointing that direction, right? So, right. Um, so yeah, the other part, you, you started to get into this a little bit, and I'd love to have you expand on it, because I thought one of your most um, sort of helpful parts of this chapter is your union with Christ as adoption by grace. Um, and so talk a little bit more about that importance of union with Christ, because I, I do think I, I think you're right. Um, it just strikes me that that is, in some sense, the core of the Protestant or Christian gospel, for that matter. And yet sometimes doesn't get the richness that it that belongs to. So uh, do you have more you could expand on uh, on that on that part? Because I think that's really helpful in your chapter. I think I came to understand a Protestant theology of grace a little better at this juncture. I had struggled with the idea that Already in the garden, Adam and Eve are experiencing grace in a certain kind of sense when God comes and walks and talks with them. That uh, being drawn into fellowship is already a kindness of God that is not deserved. And of course, even having creaturely life in the first place comes only as a gift. So there's already grace in the garden. And I struggled then with, well, why don't we use grace language even in relation to our created nature? Because it already comes as gift and is an experience of God's kindness right from the beginning. And I do think that there are some Protestant theologians, Herman Bavink among others, whose work on nature and grace is better than the Catholic tradition at this point. I think the Catholic tradition does think a little bit too metaphysically and not um, narratively or redemptive historically enough, yeah. that's probably a conversation for another day. The thing that I think I understood in a new way here is 
when Protestants talk about grace in the sphere of redemption, it's not that we're saying creation isn't gracious. We are saying here is the extent to which God's love goes in its patience and in its pursuit of rebellious sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And uh, while we were still resistant to receiving God's patient love, the Spirit pursues us and um, comes and makes us new as we hear the word. So we're not saying that creation wasn't gracious, but we are saying here is the extent of grace. It goes all the way to redemption, to reconciliation of, of rebellious sinners. And so we're using grace with special oomph in the context of redemption, and adoption is an appropriate metaphor to that. We rebelled and placed ourselves outside the family. So this is uh, an inheritance that we don't have access to. This is a family we no longer belong to unless God graciously goes to the full extent of um, reaching out and claiming us again as his own. Yeah, that's good. Okay, another one, you've, you've hinted at this, and it's always a big question around Christmas time, thinking about the incarnation. Uh, there's a sense in which we can't make sense of uh, one person with two natures and how one could be fully God and fully man at the same time. And, the, you know, the, the biblical texts that seem to be contradictory, you know, he's the, you know, God never sleeps or slumbers, yet Jesus is God and he sleeps on a boat, right? These kind of big issues. How have you, uh, how do you talk through just uh, the idea of the assumption of flesh? You know, there's there's all kinds of different ways you can, approach that topic. There's all kinds of different ways people have said, you know, assumed, not added, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think through some of those big pictures of, you know, how do we make sense of it? How do we, how do we read properly, maybe even in a, in a Chalcedonian sense as we're running into these texts? Uh, you deal with that in Philippians and Luke and a bunch of other places. So how do, how do you work out some of those kind of basic issues there of the incarnation? Yeah. So I try to show with various examples in specific texts that the classic rules of what might be called partitive exegesis of relating particular features of particular texts, either to the oneness of person emphasis or to the two-ness of natures. And sometimes particular statements about Christ in a given text might be true because of, or by virtue of, or according to one of the two natures. I try to show that that kind of grammar or set of rules really does Um, provide exegetical um, insight. So in Mark 13, um, the son not knowing the day or the hour, um, I take that to be a statement about a certain kind of ignorance according to his human nature. It doesn't necessarily preclude um, his ongoing omniscience by virtue of his divine nature. And I try to show that there might be some exegetical signals that a text like that has more going on than we than we assume when we just say, well, see, he's ignorant, full stop. Right. Um, there are any number of affirmations in the surrounding context of his extraordinary knowledge that right. goes beyond what a human being would have and that links up to the frequently Isaianic background of Mark in which, you know, in Isaiah, one of the chief features of Yahweh in relation to the other gods is his uh, extraordinary knowledge, especially yeah. his extraordinary knowledge of future events. So Jesus does uh, confess a certain kind of human ignorance of the day or the hour in that given context to serve as an object lesson for the people he's addressing about the way they need to relate to their um, 
ignorance of the timing of God's plan and be ready for um, God when he comes. But in the surrounding context, it seems to me, um, both near and far, we have lots of affirmations that Jesus still has divine knowledge. And so I think partitive exegesis, as it's increasingly being called, or this one person, two natures rubric can help us when we come to texts that are mysterious like that, to be able to sort things out as to whether a particular affirmation is being made at the level of the person, pure and simple, or predicated of the person to be sure, but by virtue of one nature or the other in particular. There are things that Jesus does that only God can do. And in those contexts, uh, it's predicated of him by virtue of his divine nature. But in certain texts, there are human limitations he accepts, and those are predicated of him by virtue of his human nature. And so we, we have to wrestle with kind of two patterns of action that can be um, predicated of Christ in respective texts and contexts. Yeah. Okay, so one of the big historical debates about this, uh, the Nestorian debate, right, about God can't suffer or how can God suffer? And, you know, those are where the rubber meets, meets the road, you know, and those some of those kind of things. So um, how do you talk through, you know, somebody asks you, okay, Jesus is God, God can't die, God died on the cross. Um, that's a place where all that comes together. Um, so how do, you, how do you talk through kind of clearly and simply theologically about what we do with that kind of question and that kind of text? Well, I don't know if I can ever claim to do something clearly and simply, <laughs> uh, but I can try. Um, when we think about what death is, um, right away we see that it's operating on the human side of the equation. Because we need to be clear about whether we're talking cessation of existence or are we talking about the separating of body and soul yep. in relation to earthly life, right? So we can't be saying ceases existence. That not only can't be true of God, but in some respects, it's not true of human beings either. So we're tempted to think that that's what we mean sometimes, but that's not really what we mean. What we mean is uh, undergoing a separation of body and soul in relation to earthly existence. And that can't be true of God as eternal spirit. God doesn't have a body uh, that can be separated uh, from the soul uh, in the first place. So then we have to be, to be able to say that Jesus's death, by virtue of Jesus's death, God purchases the church with his own blood, as we read in a passage like Acts 20 to 20, 28, we can't be making a claim about the divine nature qua divine nature. The divine nature doesn't have blood. The divine nature is eternal spirit. So there we have to be saying God did this by virtue of the incarnation, by virtue of assuming a human nature that has blood and that can undergo separation of body and soul and so forth. So I think sometimes clarifying what we mean by concepts and connecting those conceptual clarifications to the one person, two natures rubric can get us where we need to go. Yeah, that's so funny that you talked about ceasing to exist. I uh, Several years ago, wrote something for Baptist Renewal. Uh, I think I titled it, Did God Die on the Cross or something like that. And I brought up this idea that death is not ceasing to exist. And I always had my students read it in my Trinity class. And they, for some reason, that particular point, they're like, that's the aha moment for them. Like, oh, okay. You know, and like you said, that conceptual, once, <laughs> once they get that, but it's become to the point that one of my colleagues always makes fun of me because he's like, oh, I knew they took class with you because that's their first thing. He did to exist. <laughs> I'm like, hey, it's a, it's a, it works. It's got good pedagogical value. You know? Yes. 
Um, so I was encouraged by the fact that you used that, uh, you used that phrase as well. So I'm sure I probably got it from you somewhere in the past. No, no, no. Um, okay. Another big question is the relationship. If Christ is truly divine and if he doesn't, you know, um, put his divinity on the shelf or his divine power or access to it, uh, on the shelf in the incarnation, uh, what's the relationship between him and the spirit? You know, you've got inseparable operations over here. You've got spirit empowered man over here. I think you actually use the phrase spirit Christology, uh, in your book, which obviously can be fraught with all kinds of different connotations. So, so how do you think through the relationship between Christ and the spirit, both the divine human, and then how that works in the incarnation? Yes, that's a, that's a thorny one. I try to show, uh, I think it's in chapter seven, um, prompted by Luke four and Jesus's, uh, citation of Isaiah 58 and 61 to launch his earthly mission. Um, try to show that spirit Christology language is used to mean at least three things. One of them is not orthodox. One of them is, and the other one is, is kind of tricky. It's a matter of degrees of emphasis. So there's a sense in which spirit Christology, in my view, affirms the obvious, affirms a tautology even, that if Christ means anointed one, that with which he is anointed as Messiah is God's spirit. So, of course, we have to have a spirit Christology in the sense of this human anointed one with the special vocation in God's plan is anointed with the spirit and is the one through whom the spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh in eschatological fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. So in that sense, everybody's got to have a spirit Christology. And I'm not necessarily averse to putting certain forms of emphasis on spirit Christology and saying that helps us to do fuller justice to the the full humanity of the Son than we have sometimes done. I don't think that entails rejecting Logos Christology. Both are in the Bible. And furthermore, I don't think it entails that every miracle Jesus did is done simply in his earthly humanity as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, For one thing, not all of the texts say that, so we would be guilty of reading that emphasis into some texts that arguably are putting other things in focus. Um, But beyond that, I think it does reflect a problematic view of more separable rather than inseparable operations. So rather um, unfashionably, I suppose, I actually lead off that chapter then theologically with a discussion of inseparable operations, yeah. uh, trying to show that we actually need to work out better the relation of the Son and the Spirit and of the incarnate Christ and the Spirit in relation to that doctrine than, than we've often done. So I'm glad to hear that you and uh, did you say Matt Emerson? It was are, you know yeah. are working further on that doctrine because I do think it needs more attention. Yeah, I feel like it, I, I may overemphasize it at times, but I do feel like inseparable operations does a lot of exegetical heavy lifting when it comes to to thinking through some of those issues. Yeah, and obviously Adonis Vidu's book is important. Yeah, um, but I think there's more to be done. And you know, one of the things that I reflect on in that vein is the the motif of the spirit of a person and how. Um, organically related to personal identity, the kind of animating life um, principle 
um, and inner self of a person is. And in a sense, the the relationship of Christ and his spirit is so <laughs> intimate, so close, so organically, perichoretically tied together that um, that leads you to an account of inseparable operations, it seems to me, to make sense of what that motif is saying. Yeah. Well, and it's the, you know, I, it's the, like the question of the two wills, you know, are there two wills? Yes, there's a divine will and a human will in Christ. And yet they're so closely related in the one person that it's hard to, to if you separate them too much, you kind of lose it, right? right. And it's almost in the same way with maybe his relationship to the spirit is so closely related to his person that there is a sense in which, I don't know, you, uh, I'd be interested to hear your response to this. But I mean, do you think we we sometimes uh, we get so caught up in part of exegesis that we kind of just spend too much time thinking about that? Um, or we become accidentally Nestorian to the extent that we are, we're always trying to separate those two things from each other rather than recognizing this God-man relates to these things in this way. Does that make sense? There's no doubt that we can um, fall into Nestorian tendencies, particularly those of us more in the Reformed sphere where we tend to emphasize partitive exegesis more than some others and the the two-ness of natures and the fullness of Christ's humanity in, in certain ways. So we might have a particular vulnerability there that when we err, that's a side that we're going to err on. Um, I don't think that that error is necessary, yeah. um, but I acknowledge that it, it needs, it needs vigilance and both in the Trinitarian realm and in the incarnational Christological realm, um, we need distinctions without separation. Yeah. That of course is easier to say than it is to do in practice. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's right. I mean, I think, you know, some groups are maybe a little more prone toward uh, modalism or an Arianism and some people, you know, some groups, like you said, kind of where we're at and, and the more, maybe even the more understanding you have of those things, you can just create different dangers. But that doesn't sure. mean that they're, you know, Gregory Nazianzus is doing part of the exegesis pretty strong uh, in his, the, in his 29th oration and nobody's accusing him of, uh, or shouldn't be <laughs> accusing him of Nestorianism, right? Yes. So, um, so a related, a related conversation that you bring up in the book too, is the communicatio idiomatum. So I was really interested to read this because you are uh, a more reformed Calvinistic uh, tradition person. And yet communicatio idiomatum is, tends to be more associated with the debate between, you know, Calvinists or extra Calvinisticum and Lutherans or communicatio. And there's this big distinction between them. Uh, so I would be interested to just kind of hear you articulate, did you choose that over the extra for a particular reason or, um, you know, just, just how did you think through that big debate about the, about the two natures? No, I, I attempt in that chapter to claim both. Yeah, uh, I love it. Yeah, so they're, they're both, as far as I'm concerned, uh, non-exclusive reformed property. Um, Amen. so, uh, I think, you know, Lutherans, um, can be, um, the Calvinist conscience on this, um, point that you've just raised about, not falling into Nestorianism. But in an odd way, classic Lutheranism affirmed a key point of the extra. They just did it in a different way. Um, they were not saying in classic Lutheranism that Christ canonically empties himself of divine perfections or their use. Um, they were saying he was ubiquitous, right? 
while he was incarnate on earth, he was also ruling the heavens. Um, it's, it's in that environment in a particular way that canonicism emerges and then starts to work on the um, more on the human side rather than on the divine side um, in terms of the Lutheran emphasis. But classically, Lutheranism is affirming the same thing as the extra, just in a different way. That that is, they are affirming that Christ remains um, in full communion with the Father and the Spirit as they um, ubiquitously rule the world. Yeah, and you and you bring up uh, on page two hundred one, right? That that John's temple Christology being a type of analogy, right? That that God can Yahweh can be. Uh, in the tabernacle or temple in a location, for lack of a better word. And also you would never, you would never read that and think, oh, that means God isn't anywhere else right. or God is bound to a building. Like the right. Bible literally says the opposite. Yes. Um, w- would you say that the incarnation is even more than that? Like it's analogous, but uh, you know, how do, how do we think about the incarnation of God's presence in a temple or a mountain versus in a person? What's the importance maybe of the incarnation in terms of, of that conversation? Certainly it's, only analogous. There, there are huge distinctions. And James yep. Gordon, one of our PhD students who published a book on the extra, I think um, works works out those distinctions, you know, quite well um, in his work. There is a sense in which um, the incarnation is fulfilling even more tangibly and directly and personally that to which the temple points by way of anticipation. And I think a Johannine theology of, um, of that, you know, points that out very well uh, in terms of the implications of, of places like John four. So yeah. um, we're not saying it's just the same as the, the temple theology, but um, that what, what aspects of divine presence in some ways a temple theology pointed toward are now fulfilled in this even more um, personal way. And as your own work in John's Apocalypse, you know, is going to remind us, there's a temple theology there too, or a a temple language that's used to talk about the even greater glory still of what it'll be like for us to be in um, Christ's presence eternally. Yeah, that's good. Um, Okay, a couple of just more practical questions as you're thinking about Christology, you're thinking about the church, thinking about pastors. What do you think is, and this I'm putting you on really on the spot here, so you can you can punt if you want, but you know, of all the various potential heresies that happen, the the potential misreadings of scripture, what do you think is the biggest danger that your average kind of evangelical interpreter, reader, pastor runs into? Is it accidental Arianism? Is it canonicism? Is it a social thing? Like what, what do you think are the, the things that you've seen that really kind of are the big dangers people need to avoid and be careful of? Well, I think you've named two and probably it's a matter of social location in the evangelical subculture as to which one of those is likely to be the greater vulnerability. Some form of accidental Arianism or the wrong kind of Trinitarian subordinationism would be the more likely danger in some spheres. And then a kind of canonicism would probably, that that overemphasizes the humanity of Christ in certain ways, would probably be the danger in other spheres. And I, I would say the larger danger that I 
did try to counteract by the way that I organized this book with an exegetical section at the start of each chapter is that we just don't preach Christology. We assume Christology and preach maybe soteriology or even zoom past that, and we typically preach spirituality. But I don't think we preach doctrinal Christology very often at all, at least in my experience. My pastor is is um, blessedly uh, more uh, emphatic about Christology in the way that he preaches about soteriology and spirituality than many are. And so that that I celebrate. But in my upbringing, for all the many good things that my Anabaptist and Baptistic heritage gave me, um, with lots of Bible knowledge, they did not give me any Christology at all. It was just assumed. And I know it's hard to preach, uh, particularly in an American context that demands application, but I think we need to preach it if we're going to do justice to the whole counsel of God, and if we're going to inoculate people against any number of the kinds of errors that you mentioned. So one of the things that I hope for this book is that a pastor or a pastor in training who has assigned it would look at these chapters and say, ah, uh, I could preach this passage and I could talk about Christology as being organically in this passage. And um, people wouldn't get entirely lost, right? There There are aspects of the doctrine that are organically in these texts and um, maybe the whole sermon is not going to dwell on it, but this is preachable. I would like for people to think that. Well, I'll, uh, my you know my Baptist heart is just saying you know do a commercial for Center for Baptist Renewal <laughs> and, then, and then beg Dan Trier to come back come back home you know. But I think <laughs> I don't know I'll keep praying for it. Um, okay, last question: As you're thinking about um, you know, Christology is at the center of all kinds of ancillary conversations, right? Whether it's um, sacramental, uh, whether it's missional, um, whether it's even just some of the soteriological things, you know, some traditions just, just seem to emphasize or elevate certain aspects of soteriology than others or eschatology for that matter. Um, what would you say is like the binding, and this might be a really obvious question or it might be something more than that, but you know, all these different traditions and all the ways we think about Christ and how he's present to us and how we relate to him and what it means for our salvation and for our life in the church. What are a few things that you would say, regardless of the Christian tradition, these are these big picture Christological uh, definitions or big, big Christological things that you would say, this is what binds us. This is a thing that regardless of who you are, um, this is what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what joins the church, even as we're divided. What would some of those things be? Well, that's... A challenging question, and I'm probably going to answer it by saying the obvious. Um, the formal or grammatical teaching of the ecumenical creeds on Trinity and incarnation, one person, two natures, um, probably in, in one sense is, is at the heart of the answer. And then it has some, I think, material implications. Um, it precludes a view of salvation as um, dependent on human climbing, on reach, human reaching out to God. Um, it emphasizes a view of divine grace, not just in terms of its necessity, but in terms of what, what grace is and does 
grace isn't just transactional in the sense of God sending some kind of intermediary, accomplishing some kind of sacrificial ritual that makes possible a transaction of uh, granting forgiveness. It is God actively in person coming to give immediate knowledge of himself, fellowship, to, to reestablish fellowship, to reconcile, to do that in person through Christ as our one mediator between God and humanity. So that has different soteriological implications, and we Protestants, evangelical Protestants, are going to disagree with Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters about what those implications are. Um, we're going to think that entails justification by faith alone, for example. Um, but we can be taught by uh, pockets of the Catholic and Orthodox tradition that preceded us that we shouldn't think about justification by faith alone just transactionally as if God sent an intermediary. So the Athanasian emphasis on encountering God in person and being restored to fellowship with God himself by God himself mm -hmm. incarnate, I think is probably the central one that I would name in terms of this book, that I, I came away from this Christology work wanting a soteriology that has everything I'm committed to as an evangelical Protestant in terms of justification by faith alone and all of the other blessings under the umbrella of union with Christ, but wanting to construe that union with Christ in terms of immediate knowledge and fellowship with God that is dependent on incarnation and ties incarnation and cross together rather than kind of separating cross from incarnation and resurrection. That might be the most central example that's actually lurking at, lar at lots of places in the book. Yeah, no, that's really great. And, uh, I really can't recommend the book enough. It's super helpful. I mean, you're such a clear writer too, which is always helpful. You know, not all academic writing is clear as people say, but it really is true. Um, but very, very helpful. And you said at the beginning that you're, you're not using it as a way to stump for TIS, but I'll just stump for TIS for you, uh, <laughs> through the book. So we'll just do it that way. So, uh, so Dan, thank you. Uh, thanks for being on and taking the time and, uh, making your fourth appearance. We'll see if we can maybe have a fifth one sometime. I, on the road. I would welcome that. I'm honored by, uh, all of these appearances. And I really am grateful to you for saying kind things about the book and helping to spread the word. Mm -hmm.